so, so we are in the thick of the lazy, hazy, crazy days of summer, right? A little hazier than normal this summer. <clears throat> but bottom line, we are in the thick of this incredible season where what you're supposed to be doing is kicking back, is, is you know, having fun doing other things than you normally do during the long nine months that we call winter, that you, you, know, you kick back and you do things. If you're the kind of person that likes to read, what you do is, is that you get a great book and you, know, you go plant yourself on some beach somewhere and you read this, this really fun page turner, right? That's what you do. So, so this is what, I feel like there's just so much activity happening here today. I need to, can we, let's work on, I, I got it from coming from everywhere. <laughs> so, all right, so what I want to do is, is I want to show you that we have this thing that we're supposed to be doing, which is sort of kicking back, and I want you to know we literally, when we saw what was coming for soap and we were doing this Summer of Soap series, we almost, didn't, we almost changed the Old Testament passages. Because we just, I, I thought to myself, I don't want to do those verses. <laughs> I'm not interested in that, particularly not in summer. Because the little fun, light reading that we gave you this week, by the way, we always trust the Lord around here, so we did that again, and it pays off big, as you'll see today. But here's just a, a little sampling of our summer of soap readings, of our nice little kickback beach readings. Okay, here we go. Here's the first one. Because the people, I think this was Tuesday, because the people are talking like this now, what they were doing is they were saying, the Lord isn't going to judge us. He hasn't judged us in a long time. We can mistreat people. We can not take care of others. We can oppress the poor. And we can follow other gods. And it never works out to be a problem. So we don't have to worry about this. God's not going to do anything about it. So because people were saying this, go down to after the bracket, my message will flame out of your mouth, Jeremiah, and burn the people like kindling wood. <laughs> wow. Oh, Israel, I will bring a distant nation against you, says the Lord. It is a mighty nation, an ancient nation. Their weapons are deadly. Their warriors are mighty. They will devour the food of your harvest. They will devour your sons and daughters. They will devour your flocks and herds. They will devour your grapes and figs. Oh my gosh. They will destroy your fortified towns, which you think are so safe. Well, surely this has got to get better, so I think this is maybe Wednesday. Run for your lives, you people of Benjamin. Get out of Jerusalem. Sound the alarm in Tekoa. Send up a signal at Beth, whatever that is. A powerful army is coming from the north, coming with disaster and destruction. Oh, Jerusalem, you are my beautiful and delicate daughter, but I will destroy you. Enemies will surround you like shepherds camp around the city. Each chooses a place for his troops to devour. This is what the Lord of Heaven's army says. Cut down the trees for battering rams. Build siege rams against the walls of Jerusalem. This is the city to be punished for she is wicked through and through. She spouts evil like a fountain. Her streets echo with the sounds of violence and destruction. I always see her sickness and sores. Now, if you want to understand where this is coming from more deeply, let's just do one more passage. How about this one? To whom can I give a warning? Who will listen when I speak? You hear what he's saying? It's not like I haven't been saying stop. Don't do these things. Don't oppress the poor. Don't withhold your goodness. Don't do these things that, you're, that are bad. And quit following other gods. <laughs> Knock it off. 
But who listens when I speak? Their ears are closed. They cannot hear. They scorn the word of the Lord. They don't want to listen at all. So now I'm filled with the Lord's fury. Yes, I'm tired of holding it. I will pour out my fury on children playing in the streets and on gatherings of young men, on husbands and wives, and on those who are old and gray. Their homes will be turned over their enemies as will their fields and their wives. For I will raise my powerful fist against the people of this land, says the Lord. Fist. This is, this is amazing. This is, honestly, you'll be hard-pressed to find a longer, more sustained assault by the Lord in all of Scripture. Just day after day of, uh, somebody came up to me before you did, Polly, and, and she said, how the heck are you going to preach from those verses? <laughs> right? Well, I want you to do something right now. I want you to see something. And I, I want to show hands on this, so please share, because I want people to see this. There's, there's a certain amount of people in here, and it's, it's going to be quite a few. When you read verses, when you, if you're trying to read the word for all it's worth, if you're trying to read the word in a way that is informing you about your life, right? You don't just read it as a book and you don't care. You're not just trying to get through some chapters. If you're trying to read the word where the Lord is talking to you, how many people, when you read verses like this, now I'm not saying you even read the soap this week. I'm just saying in general, when you read these verses about the kinds of things that God is doing and why, how many people in here would say, Man, I just get ripped to shreds. I just feel so guilty and condemned. I, it just tears me apart because I can understand how I do similar things, if not all, but at least some. How many people would raise their hands and say, this just really tears me apart when I do that? Now, do you see how many hands went up on that? Now, I do want to say something, and this is not to the chagrin of those who didn't raise their hands because there are other options. But there is a way of handling these kinds of verses and saying, well, I don't do that like they did that, so I'm clear. I'm cool, right? I don't do it nearly as bad. I, I just, I just want to say, see, if you're somebody who, you know, the words are like putting you on the rack, right? Or if you're not, either way, both of those are wrong and right, right? We have to do something. If you can't read any part of Scripture and let it speak to you about whatever's going on in your life at the deepest possible ways, then then honestly, if, if I could just say this lovingly, there's a trust issue with the Lord. Right? Because you gotta trust that what he's not doing is trying to rip you to shreds. He's not trying to pull you apart. He is lovingly and gracefully showing us things. Just a little, usually because we can't handle more. That would rip us apart. So he shows us as much as we can handle and still stay whole. It may grow us a little bit, as you can see, <laughs> right? But, but are, are we catching this? Now, the other thing, though, is, is saying, well, this doesn't really apply to me. And once again, I just want to say, these things are not in Scripture for nothing. The Israelites are not horrible. What the Israelites were chosen for was that they're us. <laughs> so there is something of the same human nature that's playing itself out in our fallen natures. There is. And what we need to do is to be able to sort of walk a line between the Lord being able to say whatever he wants, however he wants, 
And also, now here's the key to it. When you're reading a passage like Jeremiah, you've got to do something if you're going to get what God's trying to tell you. You've got to keep the bigger picture in mind. You have to keep the bigger picture in mind. What's the bigger picture always in all of Scripture and life do when you read the things of your life as a story and so on? What's the bigger picture? What's the biggest picture of all about who God is? What is he? He's Lord over all. That's right. The one I'm going for, he's love. When you read Jeremiah, you got to know that God is love. If you don't read Jeremiah knowing that God is love and he's not just trying to beat the crap out of some people, just flay them and skewer them and wipe them, if you don't understand that there's something of love that he's doing, then you cannot read it correctly. You will miss the message of it and to your harm because it will twist you about who God is and what he's doing and how he does it. And see, it's not just the Jews he would do that to. That's you. He would do such things to you because you just can't get over that particular sin. So now he's just going to beat you. Well, that's not what a God of love does, is it? So we've got to keep this other truth in mind always if we're ever going to understand the fullness of Scripture. And I want to say it this way. Right in those verses... By the time we get to Jeremiah, they call Jeremiah the weeping prophet. We have not seen a lot of weeping in Jeremiah so far. We don't see weeping until we get to the next book that he wrote called Lamentations. And Because Lam Jeremiah is where God's telling him what's going to happen if they don't repent. Lamentations become him weeping over what had to happen because they never repented. So it's a heart of God. Listen to this warning, Jerusalem, or I'll turn to you in disgust. Listen, or I'll turn you in a heap of ruins. Now, see, now watch this. Just, just, this is a little Rorschach test for you, okay? When you read that verse, do you hear, listen to this warning, or do you hear, I'll turn from you in disgust? Do you hear that I'm going to crush you, or do you hear, listen? See? Because what he's saying is he's saying, look, even now, this is what the Lord of Heaven's armies, the God of Israel says, even now, if you quit your evil ways, I'll let you stay in your own land. All of these things are warnings. He's telling them the horrible things that are going to happen if they don't repent, and indeed they didn't repent, and they do happen. But look what he's doing. He's telling them beforehand because he's trying to get them to stop. <laughs> he's trying to do something. So all of a sudden, right there, you've got one level of where God is trying to reach out to people in love. But there is a way, and it is very modern, only it's not modern at all, is it? Because there is a way of saying, oh, God isn't really going to do that to you. He loves you. Oh, God isn't really going to do this or that or whatever it is. And, you know, if, I, if, I, if Scripture says this, but I do that, or if Scripture says this is the way things are, but I believe that it's another way, or, 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 or. See, this is where we are right now. This is where we're living right now, isn't it? This is that spirit that's it's over. It's not just millennials that brought this in. It's everywhere. Okay, the, the zeitgeist of the age always affects, infects everybody. Sometimes for good, sometimes not for good. And there's lots of great things that have come on millennialism, great things, a very realness, a very great touch between the Lord and you, a, an intimacy. There's all kinds of wonderful things that have come out, but there's also another thing that's come out, and that's sort of, I'm the definer of what is and isn't. I'm the one, I can do whatever. 
I can do whatever. God waited, in their case, hundreds of years. But he didn't wait forever. And he'll never wait forever. And, if, and in your own life, you say, well, hundreds of years, then I get away with it, the next guys get hurt. But he's the same way in your life. He'll wait and he'll wait and he'll wait and wait. He'll wait so long that you'll think he's not going to. But then he's going to. But when he does, what is it to you? Is it now that you messed up, he's beating you to somehow even the scales? Or do you know the love in it? Even here in these difficult verses, God is revealing a depth of love that goes way, way, way beyond what we ever tend to understand. You, you remember the scripture we use all the time? This is what the scriptures mean when they say, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Here's what that scripture is referring to, to be clear. It's referring to heaven, the glorious things that God has for us. That's what it's referring to. You cannot imagine the good things God has for you. But I want to say that those things that are true in spirit are always true heuristically, meaning that the spirit of them carries through. And what I want to say is you cannot imagine what God is doing when really hard things are happening to you. You cannot imagine what God is actually doing. You can't see it. If you could see it, you'd just be done. Because you, well, you wouldn't, because we don't, even though we know we don't. But you catch a drift. Here's the thing that we have to really get in our hearts and minds, this, this sermon, in order to get what God's trying to do with us. You have to understand that there's always more than what you know, no matter how much you know. There's always another place that God is doing something that is going to make an enormous difference. So with that in mind, is there a depth of something else in this that's just Truly revolutionary. I just want to tell you something. I'm about to take off because we're going to go take care of my folks for as long as we can. And then my daughter's going to have a baby and it's going to be a very active and great trip because of the grandkids and tough because of other things that are going on and so on. But I'm about to take off and I really felt like this is a sermon that God wanted to preach to this congregation today. I felt like he wanted something ringing in our hearts and our minds throughout the rest of the summer so that we would have proper time to take account of something. So that we could make a choice. Because I'm telling you, there's choices being made right now. Usually they're being made by an absence of understanding that there's a choice before us. I set before you life and I set before you death. Usually we don't know that that's true and we're sort of working the angles and getting away and doing what we can and just kind of trying to come up with some some compromised life where we get to do some of what we want to do and then we have to do some of what God says or some ridiculousness like that and we end up in this place where we're just incredibly compromised. I think God's trying to do something really cool. I think he's trying to say, do you know that there's something way beyond that you can't even begin to imagine? Thank you, Lord. Who's praying? Michelle Abling. It's, it's a long intro. It's a short sermon. Okay? It really is. I say that. I used to say that, and then the sermon was like really long. But it's really true these days. All right. Go ahead.
Father God, I thank you for this day. I thank you that you've brought all of us together here. I thank you that you are building this into a community. I thank you for our fantastic leaders here, Kurt and Adam and Justine and everyone who has a hand in the things that go on behind the scenes. I thank you for the family that you are creating us to be. Father, I lift up the sermon today. I just have this, this word in my heart that I feel is from you, deliverance. So today I proclaim this to be a, a day of deliverance. This Amen. is a house of deliverance. Amen. And I pray that everyone would be open to receive their deliverance today in this moment Amen. and to carry that with, through, with them throughout the day, throughout the week, throughout their lives, that this is the day of deliverance. Amen. Um, Father, I pray that you would stretch out your hand to heal. I pray that you would perform signs and wonders, that signs and wonders would be done in the name of Jesus today in this house, in this family, in these lives, in the life that we're sharing together. And I also lift up New Song Christian Fellowship in Amen. Brentwood, Tennessee. They're Amen. probably done for the day, but I pray that the message that you brought to them today would go deep into everyone's hearts there and that they Thank too you, would carry Jesus. that message with them throughout the week. Thank you, in Jesus. Jesus' name we pray. Amen. That was a perfect prayer and a perfect word from nearly a perfect person, and I would say perfect person except, okay? You know what I mean? Well, just because none of us are, but you get as close as we get. I, I am just so thankful that God brought you back, and you are such light in life, and your husband too. All right, so, <laughs> literally, literally, you got to see where my speed bump is today. Here, here's the speed bump. Here's my speed bump. I read those five, what I do is I read the five chapters of the old, and then I read the five chapters of the new. And I'm reading the five chapters of the old, having tried to get out of it already once. And I'm thinking to myself, well, thank God there's no possibility of there being any speed bumps in this one that I'm going to have to preach on. Not that there's not plenty of speed bumps, but not that I'm going to have to preach on because surely God would not have me in the middle of summer, in August, lazy, hazy, crazy days of summer. Surely God would not have me speak about what Jeremiah is saying here because it's just not okay, Right? And so I'm literally thinking to myself, I don't have to worry about this, and I don't have to, I don't have to do this. And so I'm thinking that to myself. And so I read the passages, and then I get to the passage where we are, or, or you know, okay, just watch this. This is Galatians. But when the time arrived that was set by God the Father, God sent his son born among us of a woman, born under the conditions of the law, so that he might redeem those of us who have been kidnapped by the law. Thus we have been set free to experience our rightful heritage. You can tell for sure that you are now fully adopted as his own children because God sent the spirit of his son into our lives crying out, Papa, Father. Doesn't that privilege of intimate conversation with God make it plain that you are not a slave but a child? And if you are a child, you're also an heir with complete access to the inheritance. Now, I've just read five chapters of, ugh, and now I read this, and literally the feeling that I have, I'm on my walk, is this. I'm like, praise God, <laughs> you know, that's so beautiful and wonderful. But actually the truth is, is that the, is that what happened was it was the juxtaposition. 
between the hills are alive moment. And this one to where what I felt like the Lord said to me, how is what I said through Paul and Galatians any different than what I was doing with the Jewish people in Jeremiah's day? Sorry about the misspelling. But do you see that? How is what I said through Paul and Galatians, the hills are alive, how is that any different than what I was doing with the Jewish people in Jeremiah's day? See? He's today, he's saying yesterday, today, and forever. So if he said this and its hills are alive, what was back there that makes hills alive? Actually, it turns out, I always, always process this this way. The biggest thing in the Jewish people's life is Exodus. Okay? It's where the law was given. It's everything. It's, you know, they got captive, and then God set them free, and they came through the Red Sea, and everything that happened. That's the biggest thing, even to this day and age, in the secular and the religious Jews' life. The Exodus is the big story. But what's the number two story? What's the second one? Well, yes, but that's for everybody. But just to the Jewish people, even to this day, there's a second story which, frankly, is never talked about very much. And it is the second biggest thing that God did in all of history to the Jewish people. And that is what we call the Babylonian captivity. It's the second biggest thing that should have informed them about who God is, what he does, how he does it, and everything else. And Jeremiah is the one who's talking about it. Now watch what I'm saying here. In about 1,000 years before Christ, 1,000 AD, we have uh, David makes one kingdom of everything. And then Solomon, his son, comes along. Solomon raises up a whole list of things. Solomon raises up, sorry, help me, Lord, in Jesus' name. Solomon raises up a thing, uh, raises up the city, and then the, the children, after Solomon, the, the Israelites come, and they, the northern tribes come, and they say, look, Solomon is like a problem. It's great that he built this temple and all, but like he was really hard on us, and so if you'll just lighten up, we'll still serve you. The son gets bad advice and says, my little finger's bigger than Solomon, which was totally untrue. And so the two nations now become, or the one nation now becomes two. So we got the 10 northern tribes and the southern. What I really want you to see about the southern nation, Judah, is that it has in it Jerusalem. So here's what happens. In the northern tribes, these people do not have the temple, and they don't want their people going down there to Judah, lest they become rebellious to the leaders in Israel. So they make up their own religion. And they're, they're just borrowing from other religions and they get people to worshiping other gods and so on. And what happens is, is that in the 200 and some years of their existence, there's not one good king that ever turns people back to God. They're all leading them away from God to other gods, okay? And so finally, God, who's been saying for 200 years, you keep doing this, I'm gonna do something. You keep doing this, I'm gonna do something. You keep doing this, I'm gonna do something. And finally, the people say, no, it's not gonna happen. And then it happens. And now they're wiped out. The Assyrians come down, and they wipe them out. Now, here's where Jeremiah fits. That happens at about 730, and we're going to see that in just a second. But here's what happens. You go another 130 years, or 100 years roughly, and you start Jeremiah. Here's what Jeremiah's saying. Judah, you're doing the same thing that those northern tribes did. You're still chasing after other gods. You're still doing all kinds of things. You're still doing all these other things, right? Thank you, Lord. Just help me. So you're doing, I'm sorry. <laughs> I just, I think I'm just getting old and I can't. But anyway, help me, God. 
But what he's saying is, is that he's saying, he's saying to, he's saying to Judah, what makes you think that if I didn't do it to the 10 northern tribes, I'm not gonna do it to you? Sure, you've got the temple, and in their whole history, which is, which is not quite 400, but close, in their entire history, they actually have only six good kings that bring people back to God. All the rest of them take them and, and tell them to chase after other gods, okay? So, but the bottom line is, is what happens is, is, it, is that Jeremiah comes along and he says, you do know what happened. <laughs> it wasn't that long ago. And everybody thought it wasn't going to happen there, and then it happened. You do know the same thing awaits you, right? You do know that this is going to go badly for you, right? You do know it's going to be horrible like it was for them. Not just a little bitty thing. Devastating. Destruction. Lots of death death and loss and terrible things. So you know that that's going to happen, right? Well, no, they don't. And so what happens is, here's both the Assyrian, that's the purple, and then see the red line down at the bottom? See, this happens in 734, and in 721, the Assyrians truck in a whole bunch of people, Gentiles, to marry with the Israelites that are in the northern tribes, and they effectively wipe out the northern, 10 northern tribes. But the two southern tribes are still there for another 130 years, 604. That's when Babylon finally comes in the first time. And even in the soap, it says this. He says, he says I'm not just going to wipe you out, but I'm going to come back and I'm going to glean, and then I'm going to glean again. I'm going to make sure that the grapevine has been picked clean. And that's sure enough, three times Babylon comes back and just completely wipes them. There's a few people left in the land, but they do do something weird. Whereas with the Assyrians, they intermarried them and they just, they just they did away with the race. With this one, the Babylonians actually treasured the different cultures and they kept them distinct as a Jewish culture and let them have many of their rules and so on and all that kind of stuff. Now, having said that, do understand, they took leaders but they killed the vast majority of the population. So they still put down the rebellion. And they still made them slaves and they would tax them and take their goods and food and all that kind of stuff, right? But the bottom line is, is that what ends up happening is that just 70 years after they get captured, they get to go home. Here's the reason. Think about, think about what Exodus is. It's the Israelites were captured in Egypt and then they go home. What happens to the Babylonians? They're captured and then they get to go home. So now watch this. What changes in God's people after the Babylonian captivity? What is the big change that makes this the second most important thing that ever happens in their existence? What changes? What's different before versus after the Babylonian captivity they've been returned? What's different? Anybody know? No idols. They never follow other gods again. Completely takes out of them. You gotta understand, this idol stuff's been going on for a long time. It's fully integrated in their culture. It's fully integrated in their minds. It's fully integrated in their lives. It's fully a part of everything they do. And after the Babylonian captivity, it is gone. Now here's the lesson that the Jews are supposed to take from this, but us too. God's going to do the very least amount that he can possibly do to get you set free from whatever is binding you. He tries, to, he tries to set them free here, but they won't have it. 
He tries to set them free here, but they won't have it. He tries to set them free here, but they won't have it. Finally, he gets to this place where it's the Babylon exile, and you could say, wow, that's pulling out a pretty big sledgehammer, a nuclear weapon. But the fact is, is that he'd tried every other weapon before that, and they knew that. And so there's a lesson in this. Remember, God is love. And what he's doing is he's going to do the very least it takes to set you free. But he is going to set you free. And it may be at a cost, which to you seems way more than what was appropriate. But that's because you don't understand what it's actually doing to you. We think it's about God. When we read those Jeremiah passages, we think, well, God is just being this jealous, petty, you know, I mean, he just wants everybody to worship him and he can't stand it when somebody worships anything else. Is that what it is? Of course not. What's happening is, is that people are worshiping something in a way and they're living their lives in a way that is actually killing them. And guess what God hates? Stuff that kills us. Let me, let me take it in another one. The first thing that we're supposed to learn from that Babylonian thing, even to today, we're supposed to learn that if you ever find yourself in a situation where God is trying to set you free, don't interpret it as God trying to beat the crud out of you. He's not. He never does. Ever. Ever. What he's doing instead is he's trying to set you free. And the second lesson is they never again go after other gods. second lesson is how long were they exiled? 70 years. Do you know how miraculous that is? Nobody ever wipes out a people, makes them really upset, <laughs> takes them to Babylon, and then says after 70 years when there's still people around, still people alive that remember the horrible things they did and says, go back, go home, and raise up a new nation. They can do what? Like attack Babylon. <laughs> That's like the dumbest thing ever, that they did that. It's unbelievable that they did that. But here's the lesson that God was trying to teach. He'll never let the thing happen to you happen for even a moment longer than it needs. He's going to set you free. He's going to bring it to the place to where you, to where step by step, but it's going to be the place that's going to set you free. And it's never going to last longer than what it has to. This is a lesson for us, isn't it? This is a lesson the Jewish community should be learning, and they don't, do they? Not, the, not most. Now, right to this point in time, I've preached a message that you've heard before. I've preached a message that is about if bad things are happening, God may be trying to free you. This is what you've heard before. I need to take you to another level, though, about what really gets revealed in this brutality that happens. Watch this. Galatians is love. Fully adopted, his own children, papa, father, intimate conversation, also an heir. Love. Love, 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 love. Oh, Jerusalem, you are my beautiful and delicate daughter, but I will destroy you. And he did. Holiness. We want one or the other. <laughs> we, want, we want love, and there's some of us that are just gluttons for punishment and want holiness. 
No, that's the wrong way to put that, right? But it does indicate something in us. We all want love. The holiness thing is a little different thing. I don't know if we even care about it anymore. I think that people understand that when they're in some sort of besetting sin, that they need to stop. But you want to know the first level of great maturity, and this is just it takes years for people to get a hold of, is that God doesn't care about your sin. But he does care about you. And we have to start recognizing something about holiness that I don't think we're properly grasping. You want to see a place where love and holiness were both manifested as fully as they could ever be manifested, ever? Right there. This is holy, holy, holy is the Lord. That's what the seraphim say that fly around him, and they're saying three times holy, which means perfectly holy. Here's actually what the word holiness means. Let's just make it clear. Here's the best definition for holiness. Not like us. <laughs> now, that's not exactly right. What it means is, is perfect in its righteousness. Perfect, which is why it's not like us. So the point is, is we've got, we've got Jesus doing something on the cross. If you want to know how seriously God takes holiness, understand when Jesus said, my God, if there's any other way, take this cup from me. And when God failed to let that happen and instead had this happen, every stripe, every pull, every flesh, every wound, every crown, every everything is this. There isn't one choice that any person in the whole of history has ever made to turn from God that didn't get put on Christ. That's why he's beat to the point that he's beat to. There isn't one sin, one choice to go your own way, not God's, that doesn't go on Christ. Not one it doesn't matter how small it is. It doesn't matter how big it is. Every single one. None of them get the, oh, well, that's not that big of a deal. Treatment. Do we get this? I think we do, right? I think we do. Christians, we understand. All of my choices went on him, so he makes me clean. But the reason why this is called the atonement, meaning the becoming one with, is because that's not just Jesus up there, that's God. The one whom we chose against. The one whom we chose to go a different way. It's God himself taking upon himself every single one of those choices. And that's the greatest act of love that the world has ever seen. It's the greatest act of love that ever could be. When your creator takes upon himself what we, the creation, have done in order to reconcile us with himself, there is no more love that can be happened. There's no, you can't come up with another scenario that demonstrates love more fully. Right? At one minute, makes us one. But here's the issue. When we think of holiness and love, we think of two different things. 
we think of holiness as this standard by which God wants us to live. And when we're in a certain phase in our walk with Christ, we will try and live up to it. And then when we fail, we will feel guilty and shameful and condemned by it. And this is the way that we will process holiness. And then we put against that love. We will put them against each other. It's like God is holy, so he really wants to hurt you, which is untrue. But God is holy, and it really does grieve him that you've made that choice. And he's going to do what? Love you in the middle of it. Think about it this way. His holiness destroys everything that's destroying us with a vengeance. Jesus on the cross shows us the depths to which God hates the things that are hurting us. That's why we need to look at the bloody cross every so often. I kind of hate doing it because I know, you know, but we have, to, we have to see what's true. But at the same time, love and holiness are not at odds with one another, they're inseparable. When you start defining holiness as God setting you free from what's killing you, God said this, we just looked at it a second ago, you're my daughter and I'm gonna destroy you. Now think about that as a parent. Could you do that to your kid? There's parents in this room, and you know parents, whose kids have gone wayward, maybe into drugs or other behaviors and so on, that were, that were devastating to you, right? But, and so we do, here's what we've developed in the Christian circles, or we did a while ago, was tough love, right? And tough love is, is you can't enable their bad behavior by continuing to do things for them, so you've got to cut them off. You've got to have tough love. You've got to really love them and not let them be able to continue to abuse you. Now, that's gotten all twisted around a thousand different ways these days, but bottom line is, that's tough love. This is an entirely different level than tough love. This is a love that says, my child is doing something bad for me, so I'm going to destroy that child. We don't do that, do we? I think there are a few parents that do that, but then they're acting in a way that isn't loving, right? They're just mad or angry, and they respond in kind to what's been done to them, and they destroy the child. Is that what God's doing, responding in kind? The cross is him responding not in kind. The cross is him responding in love. Now, here's the point. As a parent, I'm not smart enough to know where the line is that I could do to my kids in order to get them right. So I can't do it. But God can. So maybe using that illustration isn't the right one. Maybe the illustration needs to actually be yourself. Let me ask this question. Don't raise your hands. How many of you have something in your life that you would love to be free of so badly that there's almost, you cannot think of whatever it would be that you would not do in trade to get rid of it? That, that I, I said that too vaguely. Let me say it this way. How many of you have something in your life that you would crawl on broken glass on bended knee if that's what it took to be totally free of it? How many of you have something in your life that you would so love to be free from it? And I don't, I don't mean just that you get victory over it, but it's always there. I mean free. How many of you would like to never have an idol in your life ever again? Ever again. Ever again. How many of you would like that thing, whatever it is that you know is between you and God, and you would do, and, and if God said to you, this is the least 
that I have to do for the shortest amount of time that I have to do it, and I'm going to set you free if you'll do this. How many of you don't raise your hands and say, of course I want that? There's even now, there's probably still some that say, no, I'd still, I, that sounds too high a cost. But most of the Christians in this room, this church tends to be a little more mature in your Christianity. Most of you have been living with that crap so long that you're saying, I would, I would die to be free of that. Whatever you have to do, Lord, get it out of me. Kill it. Get rid of it. I don't want this in my life anymore. And not only I don't want that big thing, but frankly, God, as soon as I get rid of that thing, another 10 things step up to take its place. And what would I do, what would I be willing to have you do to me that would get rid of everything that would ever cause me to be choosing other than you? How many of you would like to be free? I mean, whom the sun sets free is free, indeed free. Would you? What would you pay for that? Here's what God's trying to tell you. More than you know it takes. Because you'd be willing to pay what you know. But the truth is what he's trying to bring you is beyond what you know. But he's the perfect parent who knows the child perfectly. And he knows precisely what it's going to take to set you free. And he loves you so much that he doesn't want you to live in that for even one more second. Do you want to say something? Go ahead. She's saying, she's saying most of the time it doesn't have to be that dramatic. Go ahead. And now I'm, I'm going to totally go off of what you said because what you say is absolutely true. There's lots of things in our life that are things that we understand and we really do want to be free of them when we ask him to come and do it, knowing that we can't. That's what he's been teaching us over these last weeks. Knowing that we can't, only he can. And you ask him to do it and he does it. But there is something that I'm actually saying that I think goes deeper than what you're saying and that is, do we really understand how much there really is to do in us? Do we? The things that we know, I'm with you 100%. Here's what the problem is. Do you understand that there is a whole complex of things that God has chosen not to even reveal to you because it would just unravel you? It would take you and pull you apart on that stretcher, on the rack? Do you know that? Now, here's why I'm saying this. I'm not saying this to make you feel badly about yourself. What I'm trying to say is, is, do you understand that you need to give God the okay to do whatever it takes to get rid of things that you don't even know are there? Because they're gonna step up and step in and cause a problem. Do we understand, do we, do we know ourselves enough to know that there's so much more going on than what we know? 
And so what we have to do is come and bend our knee and put our faces to the ground and say, with everything we've got, whatever it takes, Lord. Whatever it takes. Why? Because I want to be free. Early Christians steeped in the law got holiness. The first century Christians coming out of the law really understood holiness. It was still a struggle for them to eat meat that wasn't the right kind of meat. That's not something we even think about at all. See it? They really got it, so what they had to learn was love. But here's what I think we're dealing with. Christians today steeped in grace, we get love. We don't understand holiness. I think we don't understand holiness at all. And I think that what the Lord is trying to do, as I said earlier, he wants to set us free. I told you that I think that what is going on with this sermon is that God took us to a particularly dramatic section of soap to show us something. You think these things aren't that big of a deal? You're not thinking about them right. Even the little things add up. Even the little things skew you so that over time things get twisted. Remember what we've been talking about these last weeks? How, how you just get twisted here and you get twisted here. You get twisted here and you get twisted here about who God is and what's going on and all this. And we've been talking about how do you get it right with the Lord? How do you stay where he wants you to stay? How do you be that, that ball at the end of a string that he's pulling towards himself so that you're right in line with what he's pulling you to? How do we get there? I'm leaving you with this thought. I'm leaving you with this challenge. I'm leaving you with something that I pray to God that you spend the rest of this summer. You don't have to be consumed with this thought. But I, I don't know how else to do it. I wanted to give you something that would be a, a, you know, something to remind you. But I thought, if we need to be reminded about this, that's the problem. Manifesting right there. I really want us to get a hold of something. I really want us to go to the Lord and say yes. Because I think he's asking us to choose. He's just saying, is this something you want? Do you understand how surpassingly glorious the things of God actually are? Do we? Do we understand that there's things that God has for us that are glorious that we haven't even imagined because we're stuck somewhere below it? whether it's the mud or not mud, but it still isn't glory. Do we get it? Is this home now? God, in Jesus' name, I pray that a seed has been planted in every person's heart and that it will grow up to a hundredfold. I'm begging you in Jesus' holy and precious name that you have done something here that I'm incapable of doing but that you can do also easily, and that is to plant something in our hearts that will grow over these next weeks to where when we gather again in the fall, and we'll, we, there's certainly sermons and so on between them, but 
but just in this thing that I think you're doing that is so remarkable, I'm asking you in Jesus' holy and precious name that you would cause us not to leave this place and forget this truth. That we would instead be bothered. I ask you that you would wake people up in the middle of the night with this thought. Are you really in? Are you really saying yes? Do you choose me and me alone? Or are you trying to put me into the mix of all the other things that you like and do? I'm not looking for us to become so holy-minded we're no earthly good. Quite the contrary. I'm looking for us to learn how to live in our world no matter how bad it is. We've talked, Lord, and you've shown us how we've sort of dropped down a level and that you're allowing things to happen to us so that we would repent. Well, here we are. And I want to say something, Lord. I don't think I'm very good at that. I don't think we're very good at that. We just adapt instead. We get boiled degree by degree and don't know what's happening. So God, we don't let that happen this time. We stop and we take appraisal of it and we say, something's wrong. Something's got to be made right. You're the only one that can do it. I'm asking you to wake people up in the middle of the night with these thoughts. Cause it to quicken to them as they're walking through their days and in their workplaces. In Jesus' holy and precious name, cause us to become much more aware of what your holiness is and how we cannot attain it in our own strength, but that you would like to bring us into it because you love us, because you want to set us free because you want to do the right thing, because you are perfectly right. And so in Jesus' name right now, this congregation comes before you and says, yes, Lord. I give you permission to do this. I actually want you to take a little time actually to pray about it and count the cost of the tower because I think it's greater, as I said, than what I think we recognize. But God, we come before you and we say, Cause us to say a real yes. In Jesus' holy and precious name, reach down in front of you, would you? And there's these two cups. They're all stuck. Thank you. In Jesus' holy and most spectacular name, God, we lift this bottom cup in which is the body first our body that we broke by the choices we made by the things we did so we take our thumb and finger and we put it in there and we break it saying we recognize I love the sound of that because it points to Jesus on the cross who heals everybody who acknowledges and so in Jesus holy and precious name we acknowledge this and we say in Jesus name God heal us by your stripes, we are healed. Say that as you take. Thank you, Lord. And now in your beautiful name, Lord, your incredibly beautiful, glorious name, we recognize that you have a life that you've given to us, perfect and pure. 
Thank you, God. Let that become our life. It's already there. It's just waiting. I'm asking you that these next two, three weeks will be weeks of utter change in us. In Jesus' name, take together, would you? Okay, Kurt was saying that um, the holiness and love are inseparable. And he's asking what we're willing to do to be broken. And that picture is what God did in order for us to be broken. So he's not asking us to do anything he hasn't done. And so there's this verse in Ephesians, and we read it differently, but I think this is the holiness and love together. And Paul's praying for the Ephesians, and he says, I pray from the glorious unlimited resources... He will empower you with inner strength through the Spirit. Then Christ will make you his home in your hearts as you trust in him. And your roots will go down into God's love and keep you strong. And may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, how deep his love is. May you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to understand fully. Then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. Now all glory to God, who is able through his mighty power to work within us to accomplish infinitely more than we may ask or think. another part of this is as the Lord reveals as we're incapable he is able and it's giving the Holy Spirit permission to come in and to reveal lie by lie to us to renounce the lie to accept his truth in our life and let those that truth reign over you and reveal that and even as Kevin said early it's one by one forgiving people and blessing our enemies, forgiving ourselves for things that mistakes we've made, but going on in Jesus. And just like Tamara said, then the roots of love go deep because he's allowed to. He's allowed to reign and rule over us. But God is able to do anything we can't. He is able and truth prevails and he is truth.